This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is episode 252 of the podcast. And allow myself to introduce myself. That's the name of this podcast. And I'm going to be very honest with you. This is the third attempt at recording this, assuming this is the one that actually sticks, because I have found it incredibly difficult to talk about myself in a way that doesn't sound absolutely ridiculous. Now, why am I talking about myself? Why am I talking about myself on a fly fishing podcast? Well, there's a few reasons for that, and hopefully you can appreciate it. First and foremost, uh, you by listening to this episode of the podcast and potentially by listening to other episodes of the podcast that have come before it or reading the website castingacross.com, you are hearing from me. And so I think there's a lot of benefits in understanding the life, the experiences, the worldview, the frame of reference, the perspective of the person who you are listening to or reading. So hopefully this can kind of give you that. Now, some of that comes through in different ways, shapes, and forms, in dribs and drabs, in podcasts, in articles. But what this episode is going to allow for is kind of that all to come together. That being said, I've done a few of these before. I did one, I think, in like the first 10 episodes of the podcast years ago. I did one at the 125th episode. It actually popped up randomly uh, as I was doing some work on the website the other day. And that made me think, you know, at 2.52, maybe it's a good time to revisit this. But I'm not going to go through in a chronological order. I'm not going to talk about where I was born and work up to that point and kind of interweave fly fishing through that. I'm going to talk about a few different aspects of how I fish, why I fish, kind of my, my own personal life, how it intersects with those things, and then a little bit about casting across. 
Fishing and the outdoors have always been a part of my life. Uh, an early memory I have is fishing with my grandfather on an Illinois canal, probably about two hours west of Chicago. I remember a few things about this moment, and it could be a composite memory from a bunch of different moments because inevitably he took me fishing more than once. But one was uh, hooking his ear as he was smoking a pipe in a lawn chair behind me. Uh, secondly, it was going through his tackle box and just being in awe of all the different lures. There's wooden plugs. There were uh, rubber worms that were quite melted. Uh, there was a fish scaler, which looked like a torture device. And there were those little dial compartment boxes with swivels and hooks and weights in them. And I just thought it was so incredibly cool and so foreign. It was like a toolbox, but everything had almost like a mystical purpose to it. It wasn't so utilitarian. So that was kind of my very first fishing memory uh, in fishing in Illinois. And then fishing really took off for me when my family moved to Northern Virginia. And this was right around the time of like middle school. And my first and best friend, uh, his name was Alan, and he fished also. And he didn't just fish, but uh, he fished and he wanted to bring me along. And his family encouraged him to bring me along. And so we fished together quite often. And then Alan fished somewhere in Pennsylvania where he came back and said, I couldn't fish in this one particular place because you had to use fly fishing gear. So he went out and bought fly fishing gear, came back and said, you have to buy fly fishing gear. And so I can remember, uh, once again, the night before my first fly fishing trip up to the stream, this this stream with special regulations where there was trout. And laying on a sleeping bag on his floor and holding a fly box and asking him, what was this fly? What was this fly? What was this fly? I still have that box. It's a little like translucent burnt orange Plano box. And uh, that was my first fly box full of flies that he had given me some. I had bought some inevitably also from one of those dial compartment uh, packages that I picked up at Sports Authority along with my $15 graphite composite fly rod. So that next morning, we went up to the Yellow Breaches in Pennsylvania, and uh, within 15 minutes, I broke that graphite composite rod that I bought at Sports Authority for $15. However, I caught a trout first, and I actually caught more trout that day on that broken fly rod, but that was the beginning of an appreciation and a lifelong, at least up to this point, uh, joy in fly fishing. So this was a great place to live as a fly fisher. It was a great place to live as a young person who was getting into the outdoors because I was at the foothills of the Shenandoah Mountains. Within 45 minutes, I could be there. I could be on great smallmouth water. I could be on great brook trout water. And I was taking every opportunity that I could to get out and fish. And this is really where my love of small streams began. So I'm going to talk about two types of water that I really uh, absolutely am infatuated with. The first is small mountain streams. So uh, something else that happened early on was that we got hooked up with our local Trout Unlimited chapter, and they had a program called Fish with a Member. And they took us on a trip. Alan and myself went with this incredibly patient guy. He was We thought he was old. He was probably in his late 20s, early 30s, to a small creek in the Shenandoah National Park. And to us, it looked like a tiny ditch with a trickle in it. Looking back on it, I've fished much, much smaller streams since and had great experiences on them. But this stream seemed so incredibly tiny. And watching these guys pull brook trout out of these little plunge pools, it just blew my mind. And uh, also the hiking that went along with it, the, the physical exertion, the, uh, the the gradient of the, the stream and the trail, the wild remote nature of this. It was a, a far cry from all of the manicured suburban ponds I was used to catching bass on and even some of the freestone streams that we had access to that had you know parks and trails and things like that that long ran alongside of them. 
So this uh, mountain trout fishing has become absolutely one of my favorite things. It's something I still do today. It's something that I would say uh, I have probably the greatest proficiency at. You might say, you know, it's pretty easy to catch fish in these streams. And I would agree, it is. But it's something that I feel like I have uh, really gotten a grasp of uh, not only reading the water, but reading the water to find the biggest fish and to catch fish however I want to catch them, up top and down below, and, and determining and diagnosing which pools are going to produce what kind of fish using what kind of flies as well as being able to find these streams off the beaten path. I would say that when it comes to kind of volume of content on casting across, that's probably one of the greatest things that you'll see on the website is articles about how to go find streams, uh, how to go beyond blue lining. And once you get there, how to know that this is the kind of stream where you can continue to be diligent looking for fish and you may very well find those fish, whether they be brook trout or cutthroats or or even some other, other fish depending on where you live. So this was kind of my first foray into falling in love with a type of fly fishing is going into the Shenandoahs and fishing in these small mountain streams for brook trout. And also at that point, kind of getting to understand what wild trout were, what native trout were, and why they were special. While I, while I could go to the larger river uh, that I could walk right up to, but have, have someone you know park right next to, I could go out and fish and catch those 14 and 16 inch stocked rainbows and browns, why there was something special about hiking a mile up in the woods and catching an eight inch or a six-inch brook trout. And that's something that has lingered and, and, and certainly persists in casting across and what I try to communicate today. Something else that happened around this time is that my dad was living in Arkansas. And so I was able to go down there and fish the tailwaters, the TVA dams uh, in Arkansas and Missouri, and have exposure to incredibly large bodies of water being able to cast a, a, a fly rod uh, further than uh, most of the streams uh, were wide back back home, as well as catching large fish. And uh, this is where I first got into some big fish and just felt the the exposure and experience to being on you know 20-inch trout and how that was a completely different ball game than a 14-inch trout or a 16-inch trout and certainly of an 8-inch of an trout and, and, and how these two experiences can exist side by side with one another. I remember that as as a young age, really appreciating getting into those huge carnivorous streamer chasing brown trout down on the Little Red River in Arkansas, and then coming back to the Rapidan in Virginia and catching eight inch brook trout and saying, both of these experiences are fly fishing. Both of these experiences are trout, but they are so incredibly different, but they're both great. And again, I hope that's something that gets communicated in casting across. The next big thing that I would say that happened for me, kind of if you're moving progressively, that has been influence on not just my fly fishing, but my life and certainly casting across is happened in high school. So had the independence of, of a car uh, and the, all the fishing that came with it uh, to the point where my senior year high school stopped playing sports just so I could fish. But around this time, two things happened. One, I uh, became involved with the Pennsylvania Rivers Conservation and Fly Fishing Youth Camp. I attended as a student, and this opened my eyes to a lot of the things that go into fly fishing and, and casting across. So uh, the tagline for casting across is, one is the quarry and culture of fly fishing. So the quarry is the fish. The culture is all the stuff that goes into it. So the, the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. And this is, at, at the Rivers Camp, this is where this came into focus for me because I went into the camp wanting to catch lots and lots of fish over the course of this summer camp week. 
I left appreciating and understanding not just conservation, but how there is a community of diverse individuals with all sorts of different backgrounds and skill sets and uh, you know appreciations of fly fishing that they bring to the table to make it such an interesting community. And this is something that I appreciated at that point. I didn't have that awareness before then. I also came to appreciate the literary history of fly fishing, the historical uh, nature of fly fishing, as well as getting a little bit of a taste of the just how um, you can be involved in conservation and fly fishing without necessarily being a vocational conservationist or biologist or something like that. So this was something that really stuck in my mind when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, but knowing that fly fishing was going to be a part of it. The second thing that happened around that same time is I was getting ready to go off to school. I was going to go to school in South Carolina. I knew I was coming back to Northern Virginia for breaks. So I became persistent in my attempts to get a job at the local fly shop, and I did get that job eventually. And so that would be my part-time seasonal work uh, every winter and every summer. And this was big because it got me out of the catalogs and into the fly fishing industry. Uh, whereas I used to pour over Cabela's and Bass Pro and Murray's Fly Shop in Virginia and Fly Fisher's Paradise from Pennsylvania and Feathercraft from uh, the Midwest and some of these other fly fishing catalogs. Now I was actually dealing in this stuff and talking to people about it and all of that information I'd been accruing over time, now I had it in my hands. I was able to uh, help people with it. It was also at this time I was able to learn about what it meant to teach fly casting learn about what it meant to start guiding, as well as just learning about how there was an aspect of fly fishing, this fly fishing industry, where there were people in it that weren't necessarily in it just to make money. They had a true passion for the thing that they made, whether they were an engineer who was designing it, or they were somebody who with their hands were creating it, or they were actually doing both. I came in contact with these people, and it really made me appreciate the tangible things that we use as we go and we try to catch fish. But this idea of staying in fly fishing in one way, shape, or form really stuck with me. So uh, although I knew I wanted to be involved in fly fishing and conservation and and the idea of, of kind of sharing this with people, um, I didn't go to school for this. I went to school for ministry, went down to South Carolina uh, to get into ministry. When I got there, I kind of changed my mind, decided that psychology, counseling, social work was probably the path that I wanted to pursue. So I ended up doing that. But while I was in South Carolina, I got exposed to this whole other world of fly fishing, uh, striped bass and gar and shad and uh, and big, big, big warm water fish. And I also, while I was in school, got to teach fly casting, got to do some guiding and uh, got to sell fly rods through a smaller uh, independent rod manufacturer. So it was able to keep my toes in it. But the next big thing in life came when uh, graduate school came calling because we could get graduate degrees anywhere. And when I say we, I mean my wife, my long-suffering, tolerant wife, who although she does not fly fish, she loves the outdoors, and she has known me since I was 16 and uh, knows that uh, fly fishing is a big part of my life. So we actually got married in between our sophomore and junior years at college. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary, and I can't say enough good things about marriage and how important it is. So I encourage it to anyone, even young people, and if you do it right, then uh, then it's going to stick. So uh, anyway, we decided we can go to graduate school anywhere. Where can we go to graduate school? And I said, well, let's be close to home, Northern Virginia, uh, but let's go somewhere where uh, where we can fish. And she was all about it. She found a great school in South Central Pennsylvania, as did I. So we moved to Carlisle. And uh, Carlisle is 
real close to the Yellow Breaches, the stream, that very first creek that I started fly fishing on, uh, and that creek that the river's camp was held on, as well as a couple other creeks in the area, the Latorte, Big Spring, Falling Spring, uh, the Susquehanna River, and a bunch of other smaller unnamed streams that have fishing that's just as good as any of the ones that I just mentioned. Uh, but this was the, the next big formational moment and kind of uh, an opportunity for a couple of the things in my life to kind of converge together, you know, the river running through all of it and whatnot. Um, one of them was that uh, because our schedules were crazy, uh, we had weird, weird lives at that point in time, but it allowed me to fish a lot. And I spent so much time on the Latorte and other spring creeks. So I said before that I had kind of two kinds of water that I, I'm absolutely infatuated with. One of them is mountain spring creek or mountain uh, streams, high grade mountain trout streams. The other is spring creeks. And they're two totally different worlds. So in as much as I talked about the two different worlds of the big tailwater trout and the small mountain stream trout, there's two different worlds of the mountain, the fast tumbling mountain creek and the slow meandering spring creek and how different they are. And, and there's places where I fished in Pennsylvania in the Cumberland Valley where they're literally in eyesight of one another. You could be up on the hillside, look down, and you can see that tree line that is meandering through these farmer's fields. And you know that's where the spring creek that you fish is. Um, or if you're down on the on the in the meadow, you can look up and see that crevice and that hollow in the mountain and know that that's where that trout stream is that you're going to fish. How different they are in topography, how different they are in speed. One moves fast, and you can kind of move fast as you fish it, knowing you hit this pool, then you hit this pool, then you hit this pool. But the Spring Creek, and the awesome thing about the Spring Creek is that you have to be slow and deliberate because these fish are living in gin clear, slow moving water. So anything that moves fast is going to be the trigger for them to get out of there. But you also, because you're going slow and because you're taking time to analyze, because you probably only have one shot at most of these fish you really absorb a lot of information. Some of it has to do with everything around you. You see plants, you see animals, you notice things about, about just the nature and the ecosystem. But then even things that are much more technical that pertain to the, the, the fishing itself. So you really begin to analyze currents. Why is the water moving the way it is? Why is that bug drifting kind of sideways? Or why is it drifting backwards when there's not an eddy that's necessarily visible? You begin to start to appreciate what weeds, whether they be in the bottom of the stream, whether they be up in the water column, whether they be draped over the banks into the water, what that does to the current and how the fish interact with those things. It's almost like a complicated puzzle that as you start to put pieces together, you realize that you're nowhere near the corner, nowhere near the edge, and there's more and there's more. And I spent so much time on the Latorte and some of these other streams that I began to know which fish lived in which pool and where they were going to be in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, and, and how sometimes they didn't care if there was a hatch going on. They were completely dedicated to eating uh, you know, sow bugs, or they were completely dedicated to uh, uh, eating um, bait fish. And when they were doing something different, how it made you think, what's going on? What's changed this fish's behavior? And pursuing individual fish, waiting for something to change in the season so that that fish would be available at a time that was more convenient for you to pursue it. It was a wonderful time, spent so much time on the water, and really came to appreciate spring creeks and the cool 
ecosystem that they are. The other thing was I got back involved with the Rivers Camp, this time not as a student because that would be creepy in your 20s, but as one of the directors. And now I was getting to interact with the best and brightest teens from the Mid-Atlantic as they came to learn about fly fishing and conservation. But I was also the one responsible for helping build out the curriculum and bring instructors in to teach that curriculum. So I was having conversations with people from that diverse group of interests and areas of expertise within conservation and fly fishing and getting to meet some of the most interesting people, um, whether they have to do with fly fishing gear or maybe legal representation of conservation interests or people that drive backhoes to do environmental projects or uh, the you know world-renowned ichthyologists uh, that exist in the university systems here in the United States. It was an incredibly profound time of life and something that I absolutely loved. But like I said before, I didn't feel called necessarily to this as a, as a lifestyle. It's something I want to do. It's something that I'm still doing in some way, shape, or form in casting across. But my true calling is ministry. As much as I still do counseling and as much as I enjoyed my time in social work, I feel called to be a pastor. And so I've been a pastor for uh, a little over 13 years now. And the bulk of that has been at a church in the North Shore of Massachusetts, north of Boston. And I was the youth pastor, then associate pastor. But uh, just a few years ago, we planted a church in southern New Hampshire, and I am the pastor of that congregation. I'm still doing work at both churches as we're making this transition. And one of the questions I get from people is, what kind of church? There's lots of kinds of churches out there. So what kind of church or, or what kind of uh, stream of faith are you, you a part of? And that's a great question, and it's one I love talking about. So although my church is not part of a denomination, you could say that we're Protestant and Reformed Baptist, which means that we take our cues from the confessions that were written during the 16th century, uh, coming out of the Reformation, the 16th and actually 17th century, uh, but they trace their roots back to the apostolic age, and everything is rooted in Scripture and the authority of the Bible. So this is what I do. This is what my life is about. Fly fishing, I think, flows out of this conservation flows out of this. Talking about fly fishing and sharing my joy of it flows out of it. But that's my real job and my real life. Casting across is something I do for fun. I, I pour myself into it, but it's something I do for fun. The other big thing, and I would say the, the other major thing in my life, is my family. I have four boys, 11, 9, soon to be 7, and 4. Uh, and they all love being outdoors. Uh, you've met them if you have listened to the podcast long enough. I've had them on every once in a while. And uh, they love to fish. They love to hike. They love to splash. They love to do all the things that we prayed about uh, before they were born that they would love to do. Uh, and they're excited that uh, they get to hear themselves on, on podcasts every once in a while. Like I mentioned before, my wife is long-suffering in that she uh, is truly supportive of fly fishing, of duck hunting, and all of the, the other endeavors that I do, including casting across, which leads me to this last point. Why casting across? Why, you know, if, if I sound like I say that I'm busy, and I am, uh, why do casting across? Well, a few reasons. Firstly, um, I, I enjoy staying involved in the industry in a little bit. The Casting Cross is certainly not a major player in fly fishing, but it allows me to keep a foot in that world that I absolutely love of whether it be the products of, of fly fishing or the people that are designing things and creating things or the people who are guiding and, uh, and, and have other voices in fly fishing, Casting Across allows me to do that in a, in a way that I don't think I would have access if I didn't do Casting Across. Secondly, 
with being in ministry. You know, I'm surrounded now by my books with my Bible open in front of me here at my desk in my office. Uh, I have a certain precision that I feel compelled and burdened to maintain when I write, when I preach, when I when I do what I do here in this context. Casting across allows me to be a little bit more creative. It allows me to move in different directions with how I write, what I write. Uh, I don't have to use the same amount of care. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It just means I don't have to use the same amount of care when I write. So it kind of flexes a different muscle uh, of my brain. You know, if you if you do weights all the time, this is it'd be like adding a little bit of cardio in, or vice versa. And then I guess third. I feel like I have a couple of things that are worth sharing. And that's part of the reason why I did this particular episode of the podcast. Um, by you listening to where I came from, uh, what I'm doing, who I am, maybe it will allow you to read or listen to Casting Across in a way that is more enlightening, uh, a way that, that sheds a little bit more light on what I say and how I say it. Or it may very well be that my life experience and your life experience had at some point some intersection where you were in the same place as me, you know, whether be Central Illinois or Northern Virginia or Central South Carolina or South Central Pennsylvania or where I am in New England, north of Boston, Southern New Hampshire, then that'd be great that we have these shared experiences or we fished in the same places or or we use the same gear or you have a, a love and an affinity for small spring creeks or mountain trout streams or whatever it may be. And that allows you to, you know, kind of read yourself into my experience. Or maybe we have totally different experiences, and I welcome that as well. Obviously, my faith is an integral part. It is a definitional part of, of casting across and of me. Um, and I try not to be heavy-handed in that, but no, this is this that's what matters. That's the deepest thing. That is the most foundational aspect of who I am and what I do. And you might disagree. You might have a different perspective. And that's something that is worth just acknowledging. And it's something that I'd be happy to talk about. And I guess that's where I want to leave this episode, at least this chunk or this portion of the episode. I'm happy to have any conversation with anybody at any time about fly fishing, about other stuff. And I have been so blessed to have great fly fishing conversations with people online or in person and great conversations because of Casting Across with people about all sorts of different things. So definitely don't hesitate to reach out. Matthew at castingacross.com. Be happy to have that conversation with you. Love to know if you fish in the places I've fished, lived in the places I've lived, done some of the things that I've done, or you have a perspective on, on one of those things that uh, you just want to share with me. And again, Matthew at castingacross.com. So thanks for listening. And in another 125 episodes, listen and see if I say something completely contradictory. You can call me out on that. That can be your accusation. This week on Casting Across, there's two articles. The first one is called Inevitable Transitions, uh, Happy Inevitable Transitions. This is a Labor Day uh, article, and it has to do with the fact that there it's supposed to be this transition from summer to fall, but not this week, not where I am. It is stinking hot. Uh, but there are some good things about leaving summer behind and moving into fall. And so this is a little bit of a, a brief article because it was on a holiday. Didn't feel like writing a whole bunch uh, about that. Wednesday's article is also something I'm not going to talk about a whole lot. And here's the reason why. I think it is going to be a podcast uh, next week. It is called He Needs to Know. And, and my son and I went and fished a spring creek. And this is his first fly fishing experience on a spring creek. He's been on spring creeks. He's watched me fish on a spring creek. This is the first time he brought a fly rod. And he had some learning curves to overcome. And so we talked about those things. And some things that, um, kind of like I mentioned today, things that I kind of had to develop and figure out, I'm watching him figure them out. 
So we talked about four things uh, that he needed to observe and pay attention to as he was fishing the Spring Creek. And and like I said, I'm, I'll probably do this as a podcast next week, so I won't go into too much detail. But if you want a spoiler, then you can go and read that over at castingacross.com. This week's recommendation on the podcast is it's a little bit different. So uh, Rio, um, part of the Far Bank uh, uh, group of, of companies and fly fishing, you know, Sage and uh, Reddington and, and Rio, um, they have a group of signature fly tires. And the cool thing about this is, one, if you want to buy flies, you can go online and buy the flies that these folks have kind of invented. They, they've tweaked, made their own. And there's some really cool fly patterns there. I've, I've had some Rio fly assortments, and there's, they're good flies. Um, but the cool thing about this is that you get to know the people and the story behind what they're doing and, and why they're tying flies. So uh, Rio actually just recently added three new signature fly tires. One's a guy out of Michigan, another's Illinois, and then one's actually just up the road from me in Portland, Maine. But you get to know these people a little bit more and kind of how they and, and why they designed the flies that they did. So it, it adds and fleshes out uh, a little bit about these fly patterns. And whether you tie these flies, you kind of know where they came from. If you use these flies, you know why they were designed. So uh, Rio has a cool little website where they go through all their signature fly tires, talk a little about them and their patterns. It's a fun little read and you click around. And if you get some inspiration from it, or you do some shopping from it, then knock yourself out. So I'll put a link to the Rio Signature Fly Tire page on this podcast show notes over at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.